Welcome back to Talk Plus Water, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of water with those making waves. My name is Todd Bottler, and I'm your host for Talk Plus Water. I'm also the principal of Collaborative Water Resolution, which you can find at waterdisputes.org, and I'm editor-in-chief of the Texas Water Journal and Texas Plus Water. Both are free publications. My guest today is James Bradbury. After practicing with some of the largest law firms in Texas, James Jim, going to say henceforth, Bradbury, formed his own firm to serve his clients more directly. James D. Bradbury, PLLC, serves Austin, Fort Worth, and Montana now, uh, which is something that we both have in common. Jim's approach to client problems is straightforward and direct, and disputes are you know, often unavoidable in the uncertain world of business and the environment, but solutions are a product of strategic thinking and his focused representation. Jim's practiced for more than three decades representing clients in litigation of all types, real estate, water law, conservation, eminent domain work. He's got extensive trial experience and has served as counsel in many trials and has been admitted to practice before courts in Texas, Arkansas, and Montana, as well as the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth and Eighth Circuits and the Supreme Court. And have you ever done your work at the Supreme Court? I have. I have. We had a case um, that we had a couple of cases there, both of which we were. Um, uh, the the win for our client was to get the court to not take the case. So it was sort of an <laughs> anticlimax. You imagine yourself arguing, but our client's interests were we didn't want the, the the court to take the case. And you know, even the briefing up at the Supreme Court is very unique and it's pretty interesting. Um, uh, very very different than any other court I've ever practiced in. How bet? I'd love to talk about that at some time at length. But but I'm going to get back on our like agenda here, and I'm going to say, Jim, welcome and thank you for being part of Talk water. No, it's fun to be here with you. Uh, you know, I enjoy the journal and I really do like the interviews like we're doing, listening to uh, other people in the water sphere and seeing what they think kind of uh, in a more casual format. So it's really nice to be with you. Well, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying doing them. And you and I have known each other for a long time and I've always been interested in the kind of uh, work you've been involved with and, and you know, the, the clients you have, which are, you know, I think people who, uh, you know, we don't hear from as often, you know, hear from a lot of the uh, folks working for water districts and, you know, what have you. But, uh, you know, rural landowners are, you know, people that haven't had the chance to get their perspective as much on on this uh, podcast. So I always start out with, you know, a question about your background of water, you know, when you first became interested in it and thought, hey, this this part of what I do might be, um, a, you know, associated with my career. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess earliest on, I mean, that's my connection to agriculture, Todd, is, uh, you know, I grew up going uh, to my grandfather's farm in Kansas where my, my parents grew up and, and that's where I fell in love with agriculture. So really be my first touch with, with, with water in terms of its importance rocketing forward in my professional career um, after starting in Dallas I had a stint practicing in Arkansas really on a statewide practice doing agriculture work environmental work and you know uh, Texas is great but Arkansas is such a small low population I mean all the work is very low to the ground very land intensive and so I ended up getting to start doing a lot of water-related work, irrigation, crops, disputes, all of that sort of stuff. And that really, 
you know, one, I was fascinated with it, but two, I realized among the lawyers who practice in an area, there's such a small subset that really work in water law that it, I don't know, it's a fascinating area to work in. So I've just, ever since then, really uh, kept my eye on it, got involved in things, uh, and, you know, down here in in Austin is sort of the mecca of, of water law and policy, and it's a fun place to practice. That's great. And, and so, kind of, you know, thinking about your your work in the area of agriculture and, and property rights, you know, when we talk about agriculture and the in the you know water area, what do you, what's that really include? Yeah, it's wider than most people think, and I, I appreciate your point uh, early on, saying that in in water law and policy, we we sort of we tend to recognize that agriculture's out there, but there are not that many seats at the table uh, because it's a big piece of it. But who is agriculture? You know, we uh, we do work for large-scale dairies, beef operations, people who just own large tracts of, of, of land and maybe in wildlife. And, you know, you go down south and you've got um, rice farmers on the coast. And so I think to a lot of people, agriculture gets thrown into one bucket, that it's a farm with a tractor but in reality when you talk about agriculture and you start dividing that out there's a whole variety of interests because some are surface water intensive and others are entirely dependent upon groundwater and then others are entirely dependent upon rain so there's a pretty wide uh, palette of, of users that we're talking about in agriculture and so just kind of thinking about you know water use in the state uh, you know, I the f- figure I usually hear is I mean, about sixty percent is for for ag, and uh, the majority of that is groundwater these days. And so I imagine you've got a lot of clients who, um, you know, have ranches and farms, and uh, you know, for for years they were you know pumping and and not thinking too much about uh, aquifer management or potential regulation. And now you know they may have a groundwater district, and so you know they gone through a transition from you just kind of you know really having a well and you know being governed more or less or maybe less actually about the rural capture and you know now they've got a groundwater conservation district and and uh you know they are um you know i guess you know working within the rules of the district and the rules vary i mean you know they're 100 districts and they you know they've all got you know, a somewhat different set of rules, but, you know, there's a lot of similarities and, and that much, I'm just kind of thinking about that. That's, that's got to be, you know, something for landowners to navigate that. Yeah, t- t- totally. Because uh, one thing about ag generally is they tend to uh, they tend to remain to themselves. They don't. They're not um, people who like to use a lot of advisors, consultants, lawyers, or otherwise. But take an ag producer. I mean, twenty five years ago, uh, their world was fairly static. You know, in mm-hmm. terms of production, they had one or two wells they needed. The, the levels were remaining the same. But an ag producer today is dealing with a, a, a much more complicated set of regulations that you're talking about. Um, GCDs, GMAs, what are the rules? All of that situation. On top of that, you've got a seems to be a rapidly increasing sense of climate change that we're dealing with. I mean, as we're talking here, it's close to 90 degrees in February. I know. That's a big impact for a producer yeah. because if you're not getting those rains, you're hitting the groundwater harder. Right. Um, then the other 
one of the other big dynamics is just the the rush for groundwater we've got going on in in, in Texas, the market for mm-hmm. it, the demand for it. So you've got these large scale facilities going in to produce groundwater at or around these ags. So if I'm an ag producer, I'm looking out there on the horizon and thinking it's a very complicated landscape to be working in right now. Boy, that's a that's a a statement right there. I mean, I, I think that that you know sums it up pretty well. Um, I'm just going to go back and fill because I always do this. GCD, Groundwater Conservation District, GMA, Groundwater Management Area. Um, because, you know, some people might not be familiar with those terms. So don't, don't you know, if I do that again, don't worry about it. Necessary. You know, uh, what about, you know, you and I are, are familiar with the state water plan and what the projections are there um, for needs for municipal industrial uh, you know, users in Texas and, you know, the population projection from, you know, we're now over 30 million and we're going to 55 million or, or so. And I, don't, I can't remember how many years, but it's not as far, far in the future as I thought. And when you look at those plans, uh, they generally show, you know, declining amounts of water available for ag. Uh, what, I mean, what, what does the ag community think when they look at that? I, I know that part of that's because the, you know, the the state is thinking, well, it's hard to develop a new water supply for agriculture because of the cost of the new supply and what agriculture users could actually pay for it. But it's, I imagine if you're in agriculture, you you see that line, you kind of wonder, well, you know, what is the future for agriculture going to be like in Texas? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I think when I talk about this to producer groups or or other groups, you know, I say, look, this is going to be one of the predominant trends that's going to impact you because of you know these charts. If you can envision them, uh, municipal use is a trend line going, you know, just going straight up over the you know the next fifty years, and ag is a trend line that's almost doing the reverse. It's 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 going down, um, and that is a. That's going to be a bumpy ride. I mean, it's easy to draw as a graph, but the reality is, well, how uh, are we going to move so much water? Because we're not making new water here, right? It's the same water we're trading in between interests. And so this water that is being used for ag and food production right now is going to have to shift for municipal use. Um, Hopefully that's done in some market um, centric system such that the users and the owners of it are paid for the loss of it. But the reality is we've got some food security issues. I mean, we, we do need those farms out there growing and it's not going to be easy to make those two trend lines meet. Right. And so I'm preparing producers and, and ag groups that I talk to to understand that 2060 sounds like it's a million miles away. It's not. Um, and so we are really going to see the rapid shift of water from ag production, whether it's on your farm or your neighbor's farm, into municipal use. Yeah. Um, some of that is going to be helped by technology. Agriculture has been really good at developing, um, you know, water conservation techniques of irrigation that, you know, drops the droplets right down close to the crops so you don't get the EVAP and others. But it's not going to solve all of it. I right. Mean, we ultimately are going to be making some choices in Texas between our rapidly expanding urban populations and our farms. So, as we mentioned, uh, 60% of uh, 
water use is for ag in Texas, and 80% of that's groundwater that's being used for ag. And, you know, we're both familiar with, you know, there have been some recent reports coming out talking about the state of aquifers in, in Texas and how, uh, you know, we're looking at, you know, drawdowns of aquifers which are not sustainable and and so how does that figure into it i mean because you you know what we're talking about here is a transition of you know a lot of that water may be going to municipal industrial but but i'm not sure how much that water is actually going to be available to transition some of it's just it's not going to be there um because you know it varies by region but let's take the ogallala which is you know sort of the uh the heavy machinery of ag production and the reason there's so much uh concentration on groundwater is that's all those farms have uh and the ogallala in that section is not a recharging aquifer so it's mapped. I've seen those maps. There are areas that they know to some certainty within 10, 15 years, it's just going to come out of, of there won't be any production because yeah. that is not a flat pool, as you know. So some areas, depending on how that aquifer is shaped underneath, there won't be any more groundwater production. And then you move down into central Texas, it's a little different, um, but, but you still... Producers that are using groundwater, the reason is they don't have any other alternative. Yeah. And so if they lose that due to depletion of aquifers, either by themselves or encroaching commercial or industrial use of it, that it's just going to come out of production. Because if yeah. you get down to dry land farming, um, that's just, you can't make that uh, work anymore. You know, a lot of that land that we're talking about in the panhandle right now, I mean, I... I, I think about, you know, this very, you know, issue once they're really not able to, to you know, rely on, on groundwater, you know, what's going to happen with that land? I mean, I guess maybe it can go into grazing or something, but boy, it's, it's, a, it's a tough environment up there. It's really tough um, for, for them because, I mean, of course, there are farms who are just farming for farming's sake. But, you know, to people not that familiar with agriculture, the Panhandle is the central location of one of the largest dairy production areas in the country right now that is continuing to grow. Um, and massive production. So you have cheese plants and milk plants, all this infrastructure that's been built around the dairy industry. But the way these large-scale dairies that may milk three or 4,000 cows a day operate is having uh, a field of farms that exists around them maybe for miles and that is farm for the feed supply for that dairy so you have similar with feedlots up there you have these two predominant industries up there that if the farms begin to go down or lose significant production due to groundwater you're going to have these uh, consequential impacts on these other industries who have located in the panhandle right Right. Um, you know, thinking a little bit about the, the farming techniques, uh, you know, I hear a lot about um, regenerative, 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 blah, I finally got it. Easy got for you to say. I know. Uh, uh, regener- regenerative agriculture and, and new techniques that are, you know, being uh, employed, um, I guess, all across the country, maybe. And, uh, I mean, I'm kind of curious, are those, uh, you know, uh, methodologies that can reduce the amount of water used and, and maybe extend kind of the, the period where we see, you know, farming operations and in areas that are groundwater limited, you know, you know, coming into to issues that, you know, result in them 
having to do something else. Yeah, we can. I mean, technology is sort of the, um, I mean, it's the guiding principle for agriculture going ahead in terms of making it or not. And, and fortunately, the technology has gotten very good in, in several ways. One, uh, just in true irrigation, now you can buy relatively low cost uh, sensors to place for throughout your field uh, that knows how much water that field needs, almost like your yard, right? right? That, is, that, is, that is connected to the irrigation system so it only waters when the soil needs the water not when you think it needs the water and controls the supply so that's a helpful benefit the other which is a real big game changer is the ability to uh, hybrid and genetically modify uh, seeds uh, for varieties that don't require as much water as the corn and other crops did 30 years ago right um, so you can now produce the same amount of corn with with less water uh, because you have to and those th- those you know two bands of technology working together are really going to help even out the difficulties yeah. of this stuff one thing though I always wonder about is you know in many of the places we're talking about uh, you know mother nature is not going to provide in an average year the amount of water you might need for a crop you're always going to be supplementing it unless you have a really really wet year and of course in a dry year you're supplementing even more uh, we never really as far as I know think about hey, should our agricultural policy like maybe you know take a look at at you know where it makes sense to grow certain types of crop because of climate um, and where you know is maybe not such a great area because you know kind of off the bat okay you're going to have to irrigate to be able to, to raise this kind of crop and and if you're in this part of the world that's coming from groundwater and and maybe uh, you know the aquifers in that in the areas that we're talking about are, are not going to be able to produce for as long as we might like them to. I mean, do you ever hear any discussion about trying to maybe match what people are growing to the climactic conditions maybe more than we do now? Yeah, a cu- couple of thoughts on this. One uh, f- fascinating scenario you probably heard about, which we in agriculture are, fo- fo- are you know thinking a lot about, is you know is out in Arizona who is in you know the depths of despair in right. terms of water supply, and there are areas in Arizona where uh, you know Saudi Arabia and and Middle Eastern countries have actually bought property out there because it's an unrestricted groundwater area and they're growing alfalfa and believe it or not putting it on ships and taking it back to the Middle East uh, uh, for alfalfa so uh, that's raising a lot of questions of like is that really a wise use of resources and water yeah um, but getting back to your question here uh, you know in Texas um, I haven't heard a lot of discussion because it's you know it's one of life's uh, conundrums that the the things we need are difficult right which is how how would we develop a policy uh, statewide to say look you know doing this here on your private property versus here right. it's hard to do but I think one of the threads that is is working to help this is uh, in the world of precision agriculture, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but mm-hmm. virtually every tractor, every implement that is operated right now is collecting massive amounts of data 
uh, on the fields that they farm that's bouncing off satellites. And all this data is later layered year to year on top of each other. And so it's actually telling producers directly, you don't need to produce in that area anymore. Um, if it's this field, if it's 500 acres, maybe you only need to be planting 300 acres because the last 200 acres right. is just simply not worth your money. Right. So it's a helpful trend line that is is an influencer to individual producers telling them where they should be and shouldn't be producing. But, uh, you know, we've never had really a water intrinsic state policy look yeah. at where should we be producing some things and not others. What I'm thinking is, you know, if, if we ever have something like that, it, it may, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, no one likes to be told what they can do on the property. And so it might be a result of, uh, you know, federal subsidies, you know, maybe thinking, oh, well, maybe we're not going to subsidize production of this crop in this area uh, because it doesn't make too much sense. And, you know, as a federal government is also trying to resolve water problems, you know, water supply problems from the reservoirs, bureaus, Bureau of uh, Reclamation and right. and for the most part out west. And uh, so, you know, I've, I've wondered about that, if it may be eventually we might see something like that. But like you say, um, you know, the uh, from the state perspective i think that'd be very hard to do it's hard to do but look at you know uh how complicated our water planning process is with the with the regions um you know i I hope this is not too controversial to say, but I think in our water policy decision-making, uh, we're, we're probably very focused on the urban supply and industrial supply and mm-hmm. all the planning that goes into that. Right. But agriculture, not so much. Right. Um, and I'm not offering that as a complaint or a criticism of anything. I'm just saying that I think that's the case. Yeah, that and is, And we yeah. probably, agriculture should be a more dynamic element in all of that state water planning than it is. And, you know... When I think about the water market uh, for the Edwards, you know, ag is more dynamic, I think, there. And it's, you know, it's also part of supplying water for urban use, the way that market functions. Uh, But, you know, we don't really see that anywhere else because, uh, you know, the Edwards is an unusual situation. And it's got a, you know, a whole set of of, uh, policies which manage you know, the use of that aquifer that are different than the rest of the state. Um, you know, kind of thinking about that a little bit, <clears throat> I know that you, you and I have got a real interest in what the future of prior appropriation is for right. surface water. And, uh, boy, you know, watching what's going on uh, out west with the Colorado River, you know, you, it's, easily, it's easy to extrapolate you know, some of the issues that might happen here eventually. And, uh, you know, I'm just just curious if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I do. I mean, prior appropriation, I'm looking, you know, at that, um, you know, approach to groundwater, I mean, to water allocation as well as other approaches. And, you know, when we see what's happening out in the West, which hopefully that's not our future, but it sure could be, um, you have sort of a death match going on there between California and Arizona. And a lot of people caught up in that. And, 
I mean, my view today, Todd, is really uh, we, we have all of these doctrines we've all learned and relied upon right. and said, well, that's our doctrine and we're sticking right. with it. And they're all somewhat premised on water being there. Yeah. And so I think what we're seeing out in the big Colorado out west is the first time that our doctrines are no longer serving us. Because when the water is simply not there and you're talking about going to Deadpool in some of these reservoirs, prior appropriation is it's just not a helpful doctrine. Yeah. Dialing back here to Texas, I think you, we could wind up seeing the same thing. Prior appropriation during 10 and 11 when you had the Brazos call and all of that going on, uh, you know, the, the court told us that's our system. Mm-hmm. Okay, we know that. But if, if we had gone another three years during that drought period, uh, the Brazos and other rivers would have absolutely ceased flowing whatsoever. And pr- prior appropriation is nothing but a bunch of words on a piece of paper at that point. So what does that mean? I think we have to look beyond some of our our, our systems and our, our our doctrines to say, well, what if? Right. What? Where do we go if those doctrines are no longer serving us? Because you can't allocate zero. Right. Right. That's my concern with you know during my career here. You know, we're now just beginning to see the signs of things are not always going to be the way they used to be. Right. Right. Well, you know, you, th- you think historically, um, the Lower Rio Grande, you know, that was prior appropriation and ran into a buzzsaw during the drought of record in the 50s, and now it's a corral of rights. And, you know, I, you know, had a chance to interview uh, a few months ago uh, a professor named uh, Michael Hanneman at Arizona State University, and, and he is a, a real expert on water markets and water economics. And, you know, he was saying, <clears throat> look, essentially, to, you know, have a market and to use your water more efficiently, you usually need to take a look and 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 make some changes to uh, property rights in water, you know, starting with surface water rights. And, and he points out that, for example, Australia, I know it's a totally different country, uh, but it's got, you know, a very large water market in the Murray-Darling Basin. Uh, and he said, you know, I didn't, I didn't really realize, I didn't realize this, but he said, you know, they went through a process of reforming their property rights before that market got going. And that allowed it to, to get going um, once they did that. And I think... <clears throat> When I look at the situation here, I mean, one of the things that I react to is, you know, Texas is unique compared to the other Western states in that, you know, the groundwater is the landowners, right? Um, and most other Western states, you know, ground, groundwater is owned by the state and you get a permit to use it, right? And surface water, though, is still owned by the state. It's the public's water, like it is out right. in the West. And, but I, I don't see in terms of like the real distinction a whole lot of difference between the way people treat their surface water rights and their groundwater rights. I mean, they, you know, they, they're kind of looked on as that's my water, right? I've got this permit. It is my water, period. Well, you know, how's it still the state's water? I mean, it seems to me the state still has a, a real ongoing interest. And I know that you've got to comply with, um, you know, regulations about uh, 
surface water when you have a surface water permit. Well, you're a groundwater you know, owner, and you've got to comply with what the Groundwater Conservation District um, says you have to do too. But but that's one of the things I, I think about is this, you know, use of fructory right with surface water about really, you know, it's your right to use it. You don't own it. But, if, you know, in practice... I mean, it seems like it, it really is something that, that people own through the permit, and, and, and that's the way it's treated. Yeah, I think, I mean, d- d- we're talking about agriculture here today, so, do- you know, moving back to, to, to a farm or a ranch, looking at it from their perspective, yeah, they've probably heard and know that they intuitively they own their groundwater and maybe heard somebody say uh, the state owns their surface water. There's usually a lot of disconnect there. But the reality is, is like, well, I need the water that I need to to operate here. And so they're not as tied up into who owns what and who regulates what. They need to do what they need to do. Um, I'm intrigued with the market approaches. Uh, the Edwards is a unique area for unique reasons. Right. But at the same time, we've got to have mechanisms for an individual producer to telegraph to them, you're not going to get left out. Okay, If you have to make a shift and you're not going to be able to use as much water or you're going to give up your water, that it's going to get them from A to B. They're going to be compensated in that market mechanism there. So um, I think we do need to to move in that direction to do it because we're living in a climate and an environment with all the people moving to Texas. It's not just going to, quote, work out. Right. We've got to develop some mechanisms to say, how are we going to reallocate that and leave and make people whole? Yeah. You know, that are going to left out because if you just a lot of ag producers out there right now are looking at the growing Dallas, the growing Houston and the I-35 quarter and thinking, you know, batting down the hatches, you're not coming to take my water. I mean, mm-hmm. I be- believe it or not, I do a lot of speaking and I get that question. Right. You know, isn't the state going to come take my water? And I have to tell them, no, that they're, they're, they're not going to do that. But at the same time, that. That, 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 that threat is still there, yeah. uh, even though it's largely perceived. So we, I think we as policy people, we've got to think about that. You know, uh, I completely agree. And, it, you know, even though uh, we're talking about water markets now and, and their promise and, and need, uh, you look at you know, what the legislature said, you know, they've done two interim studies, one in 2016 and, and then one in 2018. And this is the House Natural Resources Committee in, 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 in Texas. And they both come out with, you know, strong statements about here's what's going on with water markets. Here's what could happen and our need to transition uh, to creating more water markets. But, you know, nothing's really happened. And I, I look at that and I think, well, when you're talking about water markets, you invariably are talking about some changes to property rights in some ways. And so that's, you know, one of these things where that people will not touch unless they have to because they're in the middle of a very, very bad drought and they're forced to do something because of a water crisis. But, but you know, we don't have a, a blueprint of how to get to that future where we have a system where, you know, there's a market that allows producers like you, you're talking about here to to maybe you know sell or lease some of their water and continue to use some of it for their own so that they can continue to you know ranch and, and farm like is happening in the Edwards uh, and 
in general, though, there's a real recognition that that's needed. But I don't know. I mean, it seems like we, and you know, I complain about this a lot. It seems like we don't do anything unless we're in a crisis, and you know, we're yeah, forced. For sure. that, I mean, that's absolutely it. true. Um, I do. On you know, on this market idea what I, I would really like to see the state develop a pilot or one or two in a defined area for a defined time that telegraphs to everybody this is not forevermore nobody's gonna be harmed we just want to see how it works mm-hmm. and as the limited amount i know about murray darling and their approach is they, they they were very deliberate and cautious right because i think we do need a couple of demonstrative areas where we can let that market work then study it, see how it, it it goes. Because if we if we try to say, well, Texas is going all water market, I mean, all hell will break loose. Absolutely agree. Yeah, you're not going to be able to do it that way. You're really going to be able to do it, I think, regionally. You know, in some some areas where you've got, um, you know, some infrastructure that you're going to need, and you know, some deep pockets with some of the cities and industries who need that water who can help, you know, fund it. And, um, uh, you know, a little bit of luck, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I luck. mean, I, I, I think we need to, to try it and do it in a way that doesn't look like an episode of Yellowstone. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Now, here's what's hilarious. You know, you and I being folks who spend some time at Montana, um, it's one thing that, you know, we have in common. Uh, besides the, you know, Texas Land Trust Council we're both on right. together. Um and uh, I've never watched that show, and I hear about it all the time. And you know, people like find find out I spend a lot of time in Montana. And they're like, "Oh, well, you must you must watch Yellowstone." And I'm like, "No, I haven't seen it." Uh, you know, I I do know that that um, there are probably a lot more people there now, and and it may be in part because of that show. Uh, but it's hard to it's hard to blame that. I remember when Dallas was on TV, and and. Dallas, the city, was really starting to mushroom, and I'd hear all the time, well, you know, if that TV show wasn't on, people wouldn't be moving here. I don't think that's the case, uh, but I have not watched it, so... Yeah, I have watched it. I, I I will plead guilty. I got completely sucked into, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for a cowboy show, and I, you know, I like it. But I I did hear somebody say, you know, that that show is nothing more than Dallas, uh, set in <laughs> Montana. And I started tracing one character back to the other because I grew up in uh, uh, Plano when Dallas yeah. was the show, and we we would go out and load hay right uh, right across from where South Fork was and see all these Japanese tourists staring out. In, in into that ranch at, at ten o'clock at night, and it's kind of the same dynamic, yeah, really. Yeah. So uh, in Frisco, right? Uh, so that's where I grew up hunting. Uh, you know, close friends of ours, you know, had a ranch up there, and every once in a while, I would drive by when I was going someplace. Um, I drive by the front entrance of, of that ranch, and like you say, there'd be like a, a bunch of people sitting there you know, looking in the gates and taking photos and stuff. But uh, I guess, uh, you know, Montana is having its moment with it regard is, to that, right? Uh, but people love the cowboy narrative in this country. And so, um, it, I mean, it's, to me, it's a fun show to watch. So uh, talking about cowboys, let's get to oil and gas. So uh, we've got a big issue now with produced water. Uh, and the issue is that we're using, uh, you know, groundwater uh, to frack, you know, hyd- hydraulic fracturing out in West Texas. 
you know, primarily right now, I guess. And um, there's a lot of it. And, you know, there are issues about what you do with it. And, you know, there's injection of some of this uh, produced water back into deeper portions of these aquifers and, you know, concerns about earthquakes and things of that nature. But there's also an interest in, hey, can we take that water and do something else with it? Uh, Like recycle it, use it for, you know, more hydraulic fracturing or, you know, cooling, you know, for industrial purposes or something like that. Uh, but, you know, there are other ideas about what to do with it. What, what do you, uh, what do you, can you tell us about the produced water issue? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I tell, I teach part-time uh, as an adjunct law professor at the A&M Law School, and I tell the students, like, like this is the greatest time to become a lawyer because things are, are changing so much and there's so many interesting questions. This is one of them. I mean, the, the change in technology uh, that's taken place in, say, the last 12 years for hydraulic fracturing is amazing. Yeah. Uh, produced water that is these millions of gallons of super salty hydrocarbon-laced water that come back to the surface, it's a byproduct. And for all the way up until the last several years, has been 100% waste. Yeah. And so uh, the companies have disposed of that. You get some at times some induced seismicity issues but the technology is such that now the companies and the industry is very good about recycling that water cleaning it and to use it again for the next well and the next well so there's money in it yeah and so we've moved from a waste product to uh, a revenue source uh the, the current issue we've got right now is who owns that you know, think a surface owner, mineral owner split in a severed estate. Well, the the mineral lease is with the mineral owner, and then you have a surface owner who is the owner of the groundwater. Yeah. Um, when that produced water, four or five million gallons of well, comes back up, it's cleaned up, and now it's worth money. Who gets that money? Is it the mineral owner or is it the surface owner? And we've sort of danced around that. There as there's not really a statute on that, but there's a case pending in the El Paso Court of huh. Appeals right now where uh, I will generalize and say the oil and gas industry maintains that produced water is theirs. That okay. they own that. So um, the third party, not the not the person who may own the the oil and gas rights or the the surface owner, but the the user of it. Exactly, because okay. they're saying it's it's in essence a waste, which right. it has right. been. That they are bound by railroad commission rules to handle that waste, all of which is true, but. The, the other side of that equation is the, the landowner property right interest to say, no, that is a, a permutation of groundwater, which is owned wholly by the surface owner. Yeah. And therefore, that revenue stream that is generated needs to be flowing back to the surface owner. So they that, that, that should be leased. That revenue flow should go back. So why is that in the lease agreement? I mean, you know, if you're if you're going to let somebody use your groundwater to to frack, you know, why don't they address it in whatever agreement they signed to, to get that water? Well, sometimes it is, but okay. I mean, if if the the property is still unified, the surface and the mineral owner are one and the same, yeah. it can all be spelled out in there, but if, if it's a severed estate, the EMP operator is just going to be leasing the mineral owner who may live in Dallas. Okay. Um, and so the, 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 the surface owner is not even in the loop on the lease. Um, now, experienced lease people are going to write in there that 
that if you own the surface, you're going to say, well, you got to buy the groundwater from me by the barrel. That's been done. Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, well, it is nice. And, and that's done if you own that surface estate. But now we're on the other side of this. Is right. to say, well, what was a waste product five years ago? 100% waste yeah. product. It was a cost to the EMP companies. Right. Now it's a revenue positive. And so if it's revenue positive, where does that money go? Yeah. And uh, they're, they're very good briefs competing. Yeah. I have my point of view on that, but I'll leave that for another time. But a, the El Paso Court of Appeals is going to pass on this question if it's not somehow answered in this legislative session. But why I say this is a it's a fascinating time to be a, a lawyer or a policymaker because we're literally this this couldn't have been a legal question five right. years ago because the technology didn't allow it. So just to kind of back and fill for the listeners, um, uh, Chairman uh, Charles Perry, Chairman of the Water Ag and Agriculture, sorry, and Rural Affairs Committee in, right. in the Senate, you know, had the legislation last session creating the Produce Water Consortium. Did I get that right or I leave? That's somewhere? correct. And uh, so they were, you know, taking a look at this issue and they, you know, they got a report uh, on recommendations on things to do. And so now our legislative session is going and, uh, you know, this is a big issue. And just also thinking about a couple other elements of it, you know, one is, you, you know, you don't really know all of what's in that produced water because you still have the, the, what is it? Um, what is, what's that term? The, uh, you know, not confidential, but the proprietary, right? Yeah, ingredients. The chemical mix. And yeah. That, that mm-hmm. is added into the water, um, before it's used for fracking. And then the last observation I'm going to make is that you're just kind of thinking about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when groundwater uh, regulation was really supercharged after um, the Edwards for litigation in state court resulted in the Texas Supreme Court saying in the bar shop case, hey, yes, groundwater can be regulated. And then all these new groundwater conservation districts were created. And so at the time, you know, the thought about brackish groundwater is, oh, that's worthless. That's waste. Right. That ain't the case anymore. It's the same thing with produced water. You know, people are thinking, ah, that's a waste product. Not anymore. I mean, that those developments say as much about the value, increasing value of water than anything else. You know, water sources that were, you know, people turned their nose up at at one point. <laughs> wastewater, right? Speaking of turning your nose up, you know, that's valuable. And, and, uh, I mean, it's just, that's such a change right there. Just, just to think about how those sources of water, which people thought no one will ever want those or, you know, or ever be able to do anything with them. We're doing something with them and they're valuable. Yeah, no, those forces of scarcity and, and, and money drive that innovation and all these things you talked about. I mean, from groundwater to, to, to brackish, you know, I work on a couple brackish leases uh, a year for clients and they're growing. Uh, same thing with this produced water. I mean, we need to grapple with the finer points of who owns it and all yeah. that. But that what that portends is there's a market there. I mean, you're going to see a burgeoning industry when it was a purely waste product, arguably creating earthquakes in in certain areas now you're going to see a market new players new businesses i mean it's fascinating to see i mean there's bumps along the way but 
look at us. I think that's how we're going to work out of the problems that we have is technology, innovation, uh, reevaluating our legal principles. So in addition to water, uh, conservation easements, you know, that's that's something else that you spend a lot of time on. And I used to a long time ago. Uh, and uh, I'm just, you know, curious what you see going on in, in Texas with easements these days. I, it seems like to me that there was a there was a period around 2010 where conservation easements became cool in Texas. And true. Yeah. And it just the light. Flitch, uh, switch flipped and um, you know now I don't know that we're, we've got I, I think we're still under 2 million acres in the state in easements but I think we're over a million and a half that's acres. right that's right yeah no it's been a, a, a fascinating dynamic to watch because I think back you know, at the time when you and I started working heavily together on conservation you were on the chair of the state board You know, we did some polling and realized that conservation easements were just not well known uh, to landowners and certainly not to urban uh, people. But, you know, through one variety of mechanisms, that's not the case now. Uh, We're busier in our firm doing conservation easements than we've ever been. And and others are in the same way. The land trusts are very busy. And it's an awareness. I mean, it's a a, a neat, meaningful transaction, but it's one that a landowner's really got to dedicate himself to understanding. and I think as we see landowners seeing their neighbor doing it or hearing more about it, uh, we have a demographic in Texas of uh, who owns our ranches and our open space. Right. They're very open to that. So good news on an uptick of conservation easements. Uh, I think there's an interesting aspect of them developing uh, as a tool for some some groundwater management. Right. And, and surface water uh, uh, watershed. Total. Protection. Yeah. I mean, as you know, from all of your work in science that, you know, the probably the best protection uh, for water quality on surface water is vegetation. Um, you look at what San Antonio has done out in the Edwards um, recharge area. They know if you maintain a consistent vegetative cover um, in groundwater areas or along riparian corridors for, for streams, you're keeping uh, right. the nutrients and the soil out of there. So our conservation easements are... They're playing that role. Yeah. And the more we do, the better we are. Same with groundwater. Right. Uh, those easements are a way to, um, you know, minimize, uh, you know, overproduction of our groundwater. So we're in the, they're in the, we're in the beginning edges of this, yep. uh, how conservation easements can help us in water policy, but it's pretty exciting. You know, just thinking about what you're saying, you know, all the money that San Antonio has invested in that, uh, protect the ed- Edwards, Edwards offer, and what Austin has has done, and you know, in twenty years, people will look back and think, "My gosh, that was money well spent," and ah, I wish we had spent twice as much, you know, uh, on that. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I, I look at that and I think, um, you know, that's just it's so smart to just protect your, you know, your your current sources of water as much as you can. Um, it is in a, I mean, the, the, the greatest parts about that is that it was done in a natural way. Those cities recognized our natural systems and the beauty of them and the genius of them. And so rather than paying to try to acquire everything, they said, look, why don't we just protect the systems to right. ensure the systems operate? Right. 
Um, Lord, had they known uh, of the increase in property values we've we've, we've seen now, they would have done more and more and more. But, you know, I I give credit to both of those cities for figuring that out and doing that because you you leave the landowners in a good place. They didn't have to sell their property. The water's protected. And yet the urban residents who benefit from that water, they're in good shape. Right. Right. You know, uh, I just uh, interviewed um, Reem June, and she is in charge of the development of the first state flood plan for Texas. And we didn't get a chance to talk too much about green infrastructure. You know, the plan is not finished yet. Right. There are 15 regions and they've they're just finishing up their individual plans and then the Texas Water Development Board will knit those together into a state plan. But but you know, I keep thinking about the the potential for easements uh, to play a big role in and reducing the impacts of flooding. I mean, you know, if some of these major cities, I would be looking upstream at places that you know, we might be able to acquire and turn back into wetlands. I mean, you know, just start recharging some of our aquifers and, and attenuating flood pulses and 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 things of that nature. Uh, be interesting to see if there are any kind of you know results like that. But uh, you know, easements are you know they they really are a water management tool now in, in a way that I don't think people thought too much about. Um, when, you know, the whole conservation easement movement was beginning decades ago. You're right. And I mean, I, I, I hope they are. I think they are. But in the post-Harvey period, you know, take Houston, uh, there was so much learning that went on about, well, the dangers of so right. much impervious cover. If you get a, you know, a black swan event like that, it's all about the Earth's ability to absorb that water, hold it and how it moves. And You know, Chairman Larson had a few hearings where this was discussed and conservationism specifically were recognized of how if we're going to now if we're going to go back and reclaim certain areas and not develop those conservationism is a good tool to do that, to mark that and then public dollars. Uh, it, it's far cheaper to purchase a conservation easement than it is to purchase an entire property. Right. And so that helps our, our governments um, to leverage those public dollars to ensure, because flooding is all land use. Right. It's all land use. Right. Um, the flood is going to come. Yeah. The question is how bad is it going to be and what land use has been built in. And, you know, you look at so many of these cities that are just building development after development after development, and the more concrete gets poured, that water is going to come faster and harder. Yeah. Every one. Yeah. And so uh, this conservation easement, I'm hopeful, begins to play a tool for planners. Well, it's it's certainly an inexpensive way to 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 meet your conservation goals. I mean, you know, the, uh, you know, for for people who are not familiar with easements, you know, the the landowner still owns that property. And so, you know, you as an entity, you don't have to manage it. You know, you're not taking care of it. You're, uh, you know, you're not paying taxes on it and doing things like that. You know, the landowner still is. And and you purchase a certain right um, from them to have that property in a certain condition uh, that helps you meet whatever your needs are for the future. Uh, but, you know, they 
they the landowner still owns it and can sell it to somebody else. You know, I think there's some confusion about that sometimes, but yeah, they can still sell yeah, it. People do easement goes that. with it, right. and you know, you and I both know there's a big market for ranches that have easements on it, just like there are ranches without easements. I mean, I mean, you have people come in and say, "Well, I'm fine. This is the way I want this ranch anyway." I mean, I'm, you know, I'm looking for, you know particularly sitting here in Austin, kind of looking west now towards the hill country. There are a lot of folks who want a small ranch, you know, for their family. And, you know, whether, you know, you like that or you don't, that's what's happening, right? And so uh, it's better for them to be in an easement, you know, than not. I mean, and see it eventually get um, broken up into um, housing development or something. You know, over time, you know, 25 years from now, if we flew over in Google Earth or helicopter or whatever, um, all, all these properties have been under easement are going to look like islands, you know, sort of yeah. museums to what land use used to be. And so I think you're right. It's going to flip. The theory of a conservation easement is you have surrendered some of your market value to do it. But in reality, I think now in a short period after that, these these properties are going to carry a premium. Absolutely. Because there won't be any others like them. Right. And, you know, the value of properties next to them, you know, have gone up. Even though they don't have an easement on it, you know, they somebody who builds on there says, well, I... I love this view. And by the way, that property next door has got an easement on it. So I know it's not going to be, you know, the housing development. And so, you know, even the, the property surrounding it, you know, benefit. Yeah, um, it's the smartest play uh, in real estate is find somebody that did a conservation easement and buy the place next to them. Right, right. What I would, you know, I, I don't have a real estate background, but what I never could get over when I was doing that kind of work, easement work, was how hard it is to to permanently, you know, conserve a piece of property in a more or less natural state compared to how easy it is to, you know, build uh, build it, clear it, and, oh, you know, yeah. and put concrete over it. I mean, that's so much easier to do, which that's really what I guess thinking about, you know, federal environmental law or whatever, that's an irretrievable commitment, right? That's that parking lot is not going to be, you know, a wetland anytime soon. Again, you know, it's going to be a parking lot or some other kind of development. Uh, but, you know, permanently conserving a piece of property, that's a long, arduous process. Um, it is because you're trying to get your hands around nature in perpetuity. And that right. Is a, you know, it's a wild horse uh, to, to figure out. But, that you know, that's part of the, you know, I, I, I think that fascinating part of conservation easements is, is trying to do that because you're right it doesn't um, we've all benefited but it's not rocket science to take a piece of dirt dig it up lay it in concrete and go you know start building vertical right right well we've covered a lot of ground today I think yeah um, I, I think it's a, I hope everybody's still listening by now but you and I <laughs> getting together uh, you know there's a fountain of topics to talk about but I really appreciate you know the time with you and the water journal to talk about it oh thanks well I've you know I've been looking forward to this and I really enjoyed it um, but I would do want to ask uh, you know one final question here you know our listeners want to find out more about your work um, what's the way for them to do that 
Yeah, um, we have a website, but a lot of our materials we do, I and the lawyers that I work with, I mean, we do a lot of speaking statewide and almost everything we do in terms of presentations or otherwise, we consider open source, you mm-hmm. know, and we, we, we post those and allow everybody that we cooperate with to poke those, post those. So most of our presentations and PowerPoints and all this stuff that covers agriculture, water rights, a lot right. of what we're discussing conservation easements it's 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 out there for free on the internet so what's your web address yeah it's uh www.bradburycouncil.com gotcha gotcha well jim you know i've really been looking forward to this like i said and i just want to thank you for for you know spending an hour talking about water and, and land it was fun Sure. No, it was a lot of fun. Happy to do it again. And again, thanks to you for doing this uh, over and over again, because when these emails come up, I was like, oh, wow, there's a new interview. I'm going to blow an hour listening to whoever it is. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how many people get to the end of all these. I know, you know, there are a lot of people who at least go and listen to the beginning, but I'm I'm hoping that that some of them get to the end. I do for the most part. It just depends on what kind of day I'm having. There you go. To the end or not. There you go. You got a long trip. You're going to drive to Houston or Dallas or something. You get one or two of men. That's what, when I listen to other folks' podcasts, uh, water podcasts, that's usually what I do. I load them up. I drive to Fort Worth regularly and that's uh, just about a podcast away. There you go. You're driving fast. Dang. Um, Well, listen, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Jim Bradbury is the uh, person who created James D. Bradbury PLLC. What does PLLC stand for? I know these. Professional Limited Liability. Okay. It's just uh, we we had to have a special limited liability company for lawyers. So that's what it is. There you go. There you go. And and Jim uh, is here in Austin and also in Fort Worth and sometimes in Montana over in Bozeman, right? That's right. Great. Well, uh, I also want to thank our listeners for spending your valuable time uh, on this podcast. And I also want to thank Anna Huff at the Meadows Center for Water and Environment at Texas State University for getting each episode of Talkless Water ready to flow. How do you like that? That's my new... Very smooth. My last, you know, few podcasts, I throw that in there. You're obviously getting some professional help. Well, no one's listening at this point anyway. That's what I'm worried about. (laughs) Well, maybe you should put a a coded word for a cash prize at the end of some podcast. Hey. See how long it takes somebody to collect it. That is, that's great. As long as I don't have to pay it off, that would be, that'd be perfect. Uh, My name's Todd Botler. Let's talk water again soon. 